Hello and welcome to episode 176 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? Good, good. A much quieter week. All around, yes. Big it is- things along the way, but pretty quiet. Yeah. Not a whole lot going No surprises. On. Let's go no with su- that. Yes, no surprises. But what is happening is fairly big news. Yeah. Things have quieted down since the excitement of last week, thankfully. But it was a good and busy week. And then this week, today, and it happened before we recorded. We don't even have to talk about it, assuming that it's going to happen. We can talk about it because it actually did already happen. When it was scheduled to happen even. That's amazing. Boeing has resumed 787 deliveries. Last week we talked about- I know. This is huge news. This is great news. This is fantastic news. It's good news for everybody. Unmitigated good news. And that is a kind that we rarely get. Yeah. Last week we talked about speculation that- the FAA was very close to approving Boeing's rework plan for the 787s that had suffered some manufacturing defects and quality issues. The acting director of the FAA was headed down to South Carolina to what we assumed would be a, a formal sign-off on that program. As it turns out, all of those assumptions were actually correct. And Hooray. today, Boeing resumed deliveries of its 787 line. The first one to go home with any airline. Jason, what was it? The last delivery of any 787 was June 16th, 2021, and that was TCLLP to Turkish Airlines. A bit of a caveat there. I know we we talked about this earlier, you and I. That was actually an earlier frame, one that was rolled out all the way back in 2020, that ended up being delivered just after the point where they had halted deliveries, but this aircraft specifically did not need uh, rework. But before that one, it was a month prior, on May 3rd, 2021, to Uzbekistan Airways. So it has been, if you go since the last delivery of any aircraft, anyone, it was that Turkish Airlines aircraft exactly 420 days ago. So 420 days later, Today, on the 10th of August, Wednesday, the 10th of August, a Boeing 787 departed Charleston for this one's being delivered, flown to Victorville for a little bit of additional rework for which airline, Jason? American Airlines. Congratulations. You were correct. You won the prize. Thank you. What's the prize? Nothing. I, I we don't, don't know. We, we, didn't, we didn't talk about whatever the prize was last week. But, we'll but we'll Jason, talk about that off air. <laughs> yeah. Jason, last week- Proposed that it would be American Airlines. I, attempting to be different, said it was Lufthansa, but expected fully that it would be indeed Both American. were very good guesses because both were ready yeah. to go, being advertised by the airline. They're painted. Everything was good to go. So it was just felt right for American to get it first because they have been saying for so long, we're going to take a plane any day now, any day now, next week, next week, next month, and finally, <laughs> here we go. But the plane is off to Victorville. Now, you might be wondering why in the world would a brand new airplane delivered to American today be off to the place where planes go to either die or to sit for a very extended time. And well, they have some more things to install on the aircraft that they that Boeing cannot or will not do, like Wi-Fi installation, since this particular system chosen by American is not one 
installable by Boeing at the factory. They also have to do things like put unique placards and equipment and other things like that. This comes from NYC on Twitter, who seems to know everything ever about American before anyone at American even knows about it. So good for him. But as expected, this aircraft needs a little more additional work, and then it will be in service, American says, in the coming weeks. So there you go. November 880 Bravo Juliet is the registration for those looking to follow it. And it's in the air right now. By the time you listen to the podcast, I hope that it has landed. Yeah, that would be a very long (laughs) flight if not. This was American's 47th 787, so a, a good number for them. They also, at American, revealed the plans for their future deliveries. They're going to take eight total, I believe, either eight more or eight in total in 2022. I'm not clear on that. Four more next year, 12 in 2024, nine in 25, four in 26, and five more 2027 and beyond. Of course, all those numbers are subject to change, and I'm sure they will change, but they have quite a number of 7.8s left on order to be delivered, and I'm sure they want all of them now if they can. Yeah, yeah, as, as, at least as many as they can get. As of the end of last quarter, Boeing had 120 787s in inventory ready to start going out the door. So those will hopefully be moving at a quick pace. Like we we mentioned Lufthansa, their first, which was not the first purpose-built 787 for Lufthansa like we talked about last time. It was destined for another airline, not taken up, and will now be moving over to Lufthansa. So that one's pretty much ready to go. There are a few for United that are, are pretty much ready to go as well. And a few other airlines are keen to take delivery. Hawaiian Airlines this week announced that they'll take their first at the beginning of Next 2023. Year. Yeah. I don't think they announced a, a specific date. So, but airlines are getting ready. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what pace Boeing is able to actually deliver these aircraft. Because if I recall correctly, the FAA is still signing off on every one of these aircraft individually. That's a very important point. So yeah. it, it's not like Boeing could say, okay, we're good to go. And they can't just fly all 100, of, 100 plus aircraft out of Charleston tomorrow. All of these have to be hand signed by the FAA before they go anywhere. We don't really know what that process looks like or how long it'll take. I can't imagine it will add all that much delay, but it's going to add something. So we will have to just wait and see to see how quickly Boeing can get these aircraft out the door. Jason, you make a, a very good point there that the Thank FAA you. is <laughs> the FAA for once, right? No, that's not true. Ouch. You make good points very often. At least once an episode. At least once an episode. Yeah, the FAA is certificating all of these aircraft individually. FAA inspectors are going through. Whereas previous, Boeing had FAA authority to have We've talked about this many, many times in the context of of the MAX and the 787, the organization designated authority, which allowed Boeing employees who were designated by the FAA to certificate these particular aircraft. That is no longer the case. The FAA inspectors are doing it themselves. So as Jason mentioned, that will take up some time, hopefully not too much time, but also hopefully Boeing's plan was robust enough that things become much more routine and deliveries start rolling rather quickly. Yeah, we also have no idea when that changes. The FAA can't be signing off individually on these aircraft forever. At some point, I assume they will have to transition this work back to Boeing, but when is anyone's guess? I don't know if they have to. 
they very I well could. I feel like they would, but is this really tenable to do this forever? For every new aircraft, you really need an FAA inspector on the ground to, to do it. But I don't know. Maybe that's just the name of the game now that Boeing has lost its privilege to do this, both with the MAX and the 787. So maybe this is just the, the way it is now. Just the way it is. Let's kind of go back in time a little bit, but end up in the present. When Russia invaded Ukraine and the global aerospace system that supports Russian civil aviation withdrew and Russia kept a massive number of leased aircraft and lost access to Boeing and Airbus spare parts, services, maintenance facilities, things like that. We software updates, even. Software <laughs> updates. We talked about what would happen when aircraft, basically when they ran out of their existing stock of spare parts. And this week, the answer that we posited then became true. And Russian airlines have started stripping planes for parts. This is not Uh, unexpected. Not terribly surprising. Not great, but still not great. No, especially since some of them some of these aircraft being parted out, it's not like they're taking a 13, 15, 20-year-old A320 and parting it out for parts. No, they're taking A350s that were delivered at the wire and dismantling those aircraft to keep other A350s in service. You hate to see that, but that's uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. Not that anyone didn't see this coming, but it's a Damn shame to see a brand new aircraft less than a year old being picked apart for pieces because they can't get those pieces any other means. Yeah, it's not a great situation uh, and certainly no. one that doesn't inspire confidence in anywhere beyond the very near term. And I wouldn't say it inspires confidence at all, but just it will only get worse from here is I guess what I'm trying to say. There's only a degree to which you can do this with, with, I know we've talked about this before, but with modern aircraft, you can take an engine and put it on a new engine or a different aircraft, or you can do lots of things. But when it comes down to it, at some point, the computers are going to need software updates or parts are going to need to be encoded or whatever, and they're just not going to be able to do that. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how they're able to keep a lot of these new generation computerized aircraft functioning forget about flying just functioning and powering on this is where the the ramp up of the superjet comes in the rebuilding of of the prowess of the 204 i mean these are high quality aircraft that will be mass produced for years to come right jason uh yeah yeah i definitely don't <laughs> think of aircraft being cannibalized for spare parts when i think of the superjet because it, that definitely didn't happen to pretty much every airline that operated those no Poor Interjet. On the bright side, Russian airlines already have experience cannibalizing these parts because they have the Superjet in their fleet. Yeah, Aeroflot did. I think believe they were actually in the middle of transferring those Superjets over to one of its LCC subsidiaries, but I'm sure they, they will want those back now. At some point, for sure. Let's stay with Russia and go to some interesting news coming out of Abu Dhabi this week. Wizz Air Abu Dhabi, which is the Wizz Air branded airline owned 51% by the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and based in 
Abu Dhabi. They announced that they'll be returning to Russia, flying from Abu Dhabi to Moscow, beginning again in October. The move puts them in line with existing Middle East airlines, airlines that are also based in the United Arab Emirates. Emirates and Etihad flying, continuing to fly. Neighboring Qatar continuing to fly. And low-cost carrier or lower-cost carrier, I guess, fly Dubai as well. So that doesn't put them out of line with other airlines based in the area. The counter argument to that is it's not a great look for a ostensibly Hungarian airline while the airline is legally based in Abu Dhabi. Wizz Air is a Hungarian airline. And so it doesn't reflect well on them that they'll be restarting flights to Russia. It also could possibly complicate the return of the four Wizz airplanes that are currently stuck in Ukraine that were on the ground, three in Kiev and one in Lviv at the start of the war. So I'm not sure how that plays into things. Uh, I'm not sure if they've already written off those aircraft and saying, you know, we're, we're done with them in any case. But an interesting decision, one based on economics, them saying we're losing out on money because people wish to fly between Russia and Abu Dhabi. And on the other hand, Wizz Air being a Hungarian airline and the optics of that not, not looking so great, even if they are legally allowed to do this. Yeah, this is a real sticky situation here. So Wizz Air Holdings only owns 49% of the airline, so they don't have majority holding here. It's just it's just weird for this to be happening. I get why they're doing it, but as you said, Ian, with, with, since they have other aircraft stranded because of the Russian actions in Ukraine, it, the optics of this are just outright terrible. It's an interesting decision, one that I don't think is entirely unexpected, but I think the pushback is something it sounds like it's based on the statement they put out. It sounds like they weren't expecting it. So I, I think that's something to to look forward to moving forward to, to see how they respond, if they do respond at all. So Jason, you had a surprising conversation with the CEO of of Air Baltic this week following they published their July numbers at the beginning of the week and mentioned the fact that six of their aircraft are currently out of service because they are missing engines. And so your question to CEO Martin Gauss was what? Uh, why, basically? <laughs> why, do you, why do you have so many aircraft? I believe my my exact quote was actually is your airline unable to source the necessary parts for those six aircraft or what's the bottleneck in getting those engines running? And for those of you who do not follow him on Twitter, he is exceptionally open and responds to people on Twitter. And he said, Pratt & Whitney has a shortage of engines coming out of their MRO. They claim supply chain issues. So it was just refreshing to get like an actual- a straight answer. answer. Yeah. A straight answer from a, a high-level executive in an airline said, here's the problem. Here's why we're having the problem. That's it. It's just unfortunate for Air Baltic because they're in this very, very weird situation where due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they have limited demand for a part of their network. So they are they have actually wet leased out a good chunk of their fleet to Finnair and I think SAS. And they're, they're kind of all over the place. And uh, the Eurowings Discover. 
And Eurowings Discover, of course, who could forget Eurowings Discover? But at the same time, they've now overextended their fleet, and they themselves have to wet lease other aircraft to operate their own schedule. So I think they have, in their schedule currently, they have A320s from Cyprus Airways and Carpet Air and a Fokker 100 from Carpet Air. So they could really use those six aircraft back, but now we know why. It's Pratt & Whitney can't get parts to get its own engines out of, I guess, overhaul to get back to airlines to put, in this case, six aircraft back in service. Yeah, so it'll be really interesting to see how quickly, because, and we should mention that this issue is not just affecting Air Baltic. This is an A220 wide, fleet wide issue, and it's also affecting some of Delta's A220s. We should also note that Air Baltic is going to be supplying Swiss with capacity as well to supplant their A220 fleet. So, I mean, the is Air Baltic going to wet lease aircraft to then just wet lease back out to another airline at this point? Is, <laughs> is it going to be, what did you say? It was KLM or Air France just now? Or uh, Swiss. Swiss. You said it was Swiss. Swiss. So, yeah. is it, it going to be Swiss operated by Air Baltic, operated by like Carpet Air F100? Like, something's got to give at this point. But what makes it so bad is that Air Baltic is an exclusive A220 operator. It does not operate any other aircraft. And they only have total 36 aircraft. So six aircraft without engines, that's actually a a fairly large chunk of its fleet. Kind of sticking with this issue of capacity and finding capacity where you can, also operate... So we, we talked about Air Baltic operating for Eurowings Discover. We talked about Air Baltic operating for Finnair. But then you also have Finnair operating for Eurowings Discover. And so you've got this kind of loop happening where airlines are snatching aircraft wherever they can. So theoretically, you could book a Eurowings Discover itinerary and fly Air Baltic on an A220 and Finnair on an A350, which is a far superior product to anything that Eurowings Discover can offer. I mean, I guess surprise and delight's a word for it. Eurowings has always been a hodgepodge of just like whatever aircraft they can get a hold of. But this is, yeah, you could actually book like a connecting flight through, where do they operate at? Frankfurt or Munich, and then go all the way to like Miami on Eurowings Discover and return and and never touch a Eurowings Discover printed aircraft. And then kind of sticking with the same thing where you you have BA's short haul fleet or or BA's mid haul kind of European wide fleet. You've got Finnair operating for BA. You've got Iberia operating for BA. And that's not just an aircraft issue. That issue relates to staffing issues as well. But one of the things is that BA is still bringing a a big chunk of the short haul fleet back online. So things are weird right now. And those aircraft are sitting out because you don't necessarily have the staff. And it's not just the staff to operate the aircraft. It's the staff to make sure that the aircraft are operational. So yeah. getting those it's- getting those checked out and off the ground for the first time. And, and that's not just a BA issue. I mean, that that's industry-wide at this point. No, it, it seems to be more of a European issue right now. This is not an issue we have in the US with any airline, though typically it is exceedingly rare to end up on a US-based airline wet leasing an aircraft from anyone else. It, it just doesn't really happen. Maybe it might happen if you fly Sun Country or something like that. They've, they've been known to do it in the past with like extra airways, but you will probably never, ever, ever end up 
booking United or American or Delta and ending up on a wet leased aircraft from someone. That right. does not right. happen here. Yeah, it, it's a completely different model. So yeah, that, that's a fair point. So Jason, we've not done a huge amount of in-depth discussion of eVTOLs on a regular basis, mostly because we've been waiting for money to change hands in, in certain circumstances. Uh, I don't know if that's the only reason we haven't It's not the it. only reason, but it's certainly one of the big reasons because marketing is one thing and marketing is good. Marketing helps propel products. That's certainly all well and good. But now money has changed hands. Archer received a $10 million prepayment from United Airlines. United had previously ordered 100 EV tall aircraft from Archer. This week, they received a $10 million pre-delivery payment. And according to this release, it is believed to be one of the first of the kind in the industry. So at least somebody's making some revenue. They say that the payment represents a watershed moment for the EV toll industry. I'm not sure that's true, but they, that's what they're saying. Validating confidence in the commercialization of EV toll aircraft and Archer's leadership. All right. Okay. $10 million isn't exactly a huge amount of money. It's not chump change. So United clearly sees that this aircraft is something that they want and something that maybe they want to throw a little money at to get it along the way. I believe they also picked a name for the aircraft now. We just don't have to call it the Archer eVTOL. What is it called? The Midnight? I believe that that is what it is called. They don't yeah. say, they don't mention that in the, they in, don't, in the release at all. No, they mention that separately. Unless it's a different aircraft, I don't know. They, they, <laughs> one of them is called the Maker. One of them is called the Midnight. Uh, I'm not even sure if they're different aircraft. I'm pretty sure... It's the midnight now. What happened to boring Something? numerical names for aircraft? I don't know, but it, it's better that? than I don't know. At least we don't have Sony naming any aircraft because then it would be like fifteen <laughs> alphanumeric digits with a hyphen in the middle. But this is good. I'm not convinced this is necessarily the future because this is not replacing any aircraft except maybe helicopter flights to somewhere i don't know i still don't truly know what you're doing with like a two-seat aircraft with limited range but clearly someone at united sees a future for this or they see at least 10 million dollars worth of future in it 10, 10 million dollars worth of future so far maybe some more future soon mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a step it's a big step 10 million dollars is a big step it's not a huge step but it's a big step and i thought it was worth bringing up because money is in fact changing hands it's not just another letter of intent to understand a memorandum to possibly consider a purchase order this was actual cash changing hands and at some point i will find out what model united has on order and what the midnight is and what the maker is i'm not sure this this space is still very confusing to me <laughs> but it's one that we better familiarize ourselves with so on we go let's talk about so last week we had seth miller on the program who runs paxx.aero to talk about the proposed department of transportation refund proposal refund guidelines that they're seeking comment on. So that's what we talked about last week. Then this week, he dug into some numbers about how efficient 
U.S. airlines are in relation to, on a per-employee basis, how many flights are airlines operating? And Jason, you were digging into some of these numbers that, that Seth put together, and, and I'll let you give us the overview. Yeah. So as a primer for this topic, I took a look at some of the numbers that Amsterdam put out in July, actually, that they had flown 5.2 million passengers from, through, or via Schiphol in, in June 2022. But that was 1.3 million fewer passengers than in 2019, or on 15% fewer flights. And it just kind of felt like industry-wide, there's this upper barrier at 85% where doesn't matter what airport it is, doesn't matter what airline it is, nobody can operate at above 85% capacity of 2019. And if they try it, bad things happen. Airports melt down, airlines melt down, everyone has a bad time, bags get sent to purgatory and never seen again. Seth took a look at some of the numbers published by the DOT for US airlines in particular. And across the board, on average, it really seems like, well, I'll quote him here, a review of employment numbers and schedules suggests that airlines are up to 20% less efficient than in 2019 on a per-employee basis. And it's not something you can blame on employee shortages. Most airlines at this point, are at their 2019 staffing levels, or in some cases, above 2019 staffing levels. So they are operating fewer flights with more employees, which is not a good combination. He goes on to say that as of May 2022, Frontier employed 23% more people than in 2019. Allegiant is up 29%, and Spirit is up 23%. But on a per-employee basis, Everything about their schedule is actually smaller. Spirit scheduled 17.6% fewer flights. Allegiant, 16.8% fewer. Across the board, it's just nobody can do what they did in 2019 with the same or even a greater number of human resources. And there's some theories on, on why that is true. And some of this, yes, is up to FAA, air traffic control, and weather. But that's not really the majority of it. It just seems like all the airlines in the US, they let all the experienced people who knew what they were doing leave. Either they took buyouts or they retired early or they just left the industry to do other things during COVID. And now you've got people at the airport, in operation centers, on the aircraft that are junior. They're brand new. They've only been at this for two months, six months, whatever. And what an employee that's been working at the airline for 20 years could accomplish in five minutes is probably now taking 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And it's just this problem that's not going to go away with anything but time. Junior employees need to to figure out how to do things more efficiently. And at this point, it seems like that last bit of 20% of capacity is not going to come back anytime soon, no matter what we do, because it's just down to the the human element. I hate it when it comes down to the human element. Right? With humans are the worst, but <laughs> it's not an issue that's going to go away. And I think JetBlue CEO on their earnings call this last week or in some interview basically said they are hiring more people than they need to because they have a, an employee retention issue. So they'll hire 20 people to do the job that they might only need with 15 people, but they lose five people along the way or they lose 10 people after the first month or so. So it's not only an issue of employees these days being more junior, not having the experience, but they just can't keep them mainly because working in the airline industry is 
really not easy. It's really difficult. It's not an easy space to get acclimated to, especially when some of the greatest perks of being an airline employee is flying for free and with flights going out 100% full, 100% of the time, that perk doesn't exist most times. So it, it's a hard sell to get people to not only start working in this industry, but continue working on it and gaining that experience so we can get that last 20% of capacity back. Yeah, I, I think the touting of the juniority effect, as Delta CEO Ed Bastian called it, that- Not a good look. That effect is- also, because of the the labor costs have risen across the board, I mean, not as much of a savings has been realized. Certainly, there's a savings there versus the other more experienced employees that were more well compensated. But the problems that that has seemingly created or helped to create, is that worth it? Yeah, it's especially damaging for airlines like Delta, who had a reputation of unimpeachable punctuality. That I mean, they literally trademarked the term "the on-time machine," a, a trademark which hilariously has actually since lapsed. That I don't believe they own anymore. I think Brian Summers <laughs> looked that up. Uh, it, it's not good for airline reputations like Delta. Like they were, they had their reputation of being the on-time airline. If you booked a seven p.m. departure, you were probably going to leave at 7 p.m. and get in early. But these days, look at JFK specifically, even on days where the weather is not bad, they cannot get a p.m. departure bank out and off the gate on time, even on days where the weather is good. And that's just, it's not because they don't, maybe not because they have enough employees, it's just those employees aren't able to do things as efficiently as in the past, especially when you look at some of the systems that you have to work with in this industry. There may be people who have worked there for 20 years that know, oh, I have to do this thing in Sabre. You press control function F8 and escape at the same time, and it is a shortcut in Sabre or or what or Amadeus or shares or whatever. There's a good chunk of those just shortcut things that new employees, there's no one there to tell them that that thing existed, that, that what shortcuts or what how they can do things more efficiently or quicker than they were trained to do. A lot of shortcuts like that just it's brain drain in a yeah, lot of in industries, especially knowledge. in the travel industry. Yeah. It's just gone out with uh, the buyouts that they should not have really offered to the degree that they did offer them in 2020 that they now regret. It's going to take years to get the efficiency that we had in 2020 back. <sighs> Jason, it pains me to say this. Go on. But I think you're right. Ah, I think you're right. That's twice in an episode. I've had a good that's point twice in an episode right in a single episode. We oh, should, well, this is, that, that's it. This is the worst uh, for episode 176. I think I'm going to walk out the door now. <laughs> You're Bye. just going to stop now. Oh, don't go anywhere yet, Jason. Explain what KLM is doing for the World Cup. I don't. They said they were going to do yesterday. Now that given they're trying to rearrange the World Cup schedule, but but KLM filed an interesting flight schedule and. This is one of those things where we're hoping someone either from KLM, from Dubai World Central, from Doha Airport, or anybody who has any ideas listening and can email us at podcast at fr24.com and say, you know what? Here's why it's happening. Jason, yeah. please explain. Uh, so KLM does not currently fly to Doha. Doha is the host city country thing for the FIFA World Cup this year. 
as he had said just before that, they're proposing bumping it up by a day, but that's an entirely different conversation for an entirely different podcast. But KLM announced that they were going to fly to Doha for the World Cup. Great. That's a great idea. Add capacity for an airline, uh, a worldwide connecting airline to Doha. That's a good idea. But what's interesting is what happens after KLM goes to Doha. No, they do not simply return to Amsterdam. They continue on to Dubai in the middle of the night. It's like a midnight departure, I think even later, 2.55 a.m. departure. They go to Dubai, but they don't go to Dubai International, like DXB, like the airport everyone knows and, and has probably been to. They're flying to DWC, the other airport that was supposed to replace DXB that currently hosts zero passenger flights per day. I know Ian, we had a back and forth on this earlier this week because I called <laughs> yes. it a, a little used airport and you took exception to that. And I, I did the math and it turns out there are indeed zero passenger airlines operating to DWC right now. A number of them will wrap up for the World Cup. Qatar, Fly Dubai specifically, and I think Condor at some point later in the year will start flying as well. But after they land at DWC, they turn around and depart at 4.45 a.m., back to Amsterdam, and no one can really figure out why. They haven't said why they're doing this. There's some ideas of maybe the fuel is cheaper in Dubai, or maybe their crew can't get hotel rooms in Doha because of the World Cup, and there isn't exactly a, a ton of hotel stock to spare in a city that size during the World Cup. So maybe they're just shuttling over to DWC, just or Al Maktoum, DWC, to get hotel rooms for their crew. We don't really know why, but it's odd to see a triangle route like this. Especially one that doesn't, there's not really passenger demand coming out of Dubai World Central. There's not- No, the demand is zero. No airline has been able to make it work. I'm sure they're doing it for a very simple, specific reason. We just don't know what it is. No. Uh, so if you know what it is, you're listening to the podcast and go, ooh, 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 I know. Please email us. Somebody tell it's us, It's been please. eating me up all week. All week it's been eating me Ian's up. Ian's got no sleep. I got to know. And we haven't heard back from KLM. A couple things to close out the podcast. One, it was an incident I hadn't heard about until the NTSB report came out this week. On the 1st of July – a Southwest Airlines 737-700 was flying from Oakland to Santa Ana, John Wayne Airport, and the aircraft landed so hard, it broke the flight attendant in the rear of the aircraft's back. That's not supposed to happen. Wow. That is not supposed to happen. Quoting from the NTSB report, paramedics evaluated her and transported her to a local hospital where she was later diagnosed with a compression fracture to her T3 vertebra. This was the flight attendant sitting in the aft jump seat. And she says that the plane hit the ground with such force, she thought the plane had crashed. Wow. That's uh, not great. The aircraft, however... It did indeed have a hard landing. The NTSB report goes on to list some of the the factors. They did not travel to the site uh, of the incident. However, how long did the plane stay on the ground? Well, it's southwest, so 37 minutes. (laughs) 
<laughs> it appears they did at least a bit of inspecting of the aircraft because it was supposed to depart at 5.45 local time, PM local time. It departed at 6.55 local time, PM. So they, they took a, a, about an hour delay to, to make sure that they hadn't smashed the plane to pieces, I guess. But kind of a crazy story, g- given the fact that there was no dam- apparently no damage to the aircraft, but the aircraft hit hard enough to have the, the flight attendant suffer a compression fracture. Yeah. So just a strange set of events. That reminds me of something. You said, how long would this aircraft be on the ground? And remember a few weeks ago, maybe months ago, when we talked about the, the United Aircraft at Pittsburgh that had to have ah, yes, this, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. CVR and FDR removed, but they took like no delay at all. And we pondered, right. how does that work? And we asked our friend Sean Payne, we spoke to him on the podcast, and we reached out to him, and he replied to us an email. And I, I have that email up. I, I will summarize here. But to answer your question, this can vary quite a bit by aircraft, as all things do. Let's assume you have an aircraft with a traditional CVR and FDR in the tail section. Where it is exactly on the aircraft varies, but what's common is that the recorders are sitting on an electronics tray in the tail of the aircraft behind some sort of maintenance panel. The tray has a quick-release system that makes pulling the recorders very fast. Some call it simply an avionics rack or shock tray or a lot of things, but the tray has a set of dual female plugs with female pins that the recorder has inset male pins. You unscrew two screws holding the recorder in the rack and simply slide the recorder out. The chassis rack ensures that the pins are lined up correctly when you slide a new recorder in. Really, the biggest part, not I'm going, I'm not reading word for word here at this point. The, the only thing that takes time is making sure that the airline actually has a new recorder to slot into position back on that aircraft. Otherwise, you have to ground that aircraft until you get one. So yeah, there you go. Right from Sean Payne. Basically, it's open the door, remove a couple of screws, slide the thing out, slot a new one in, and you're good to go. Yeah. So a simple procedure, certainly dependent upon having one in stock ready to slot back in to make sure the aircraft is then able to be dispatched. Funny enough, he gave us a link to an image of one of these racks that you just slide in and out the CVR FDR. It it is currently out of stock, unfortunately. They cost $50 used, but they're they're out of stock (laughs) at the moment. So this one was in good condition, not bent or cracked, but it's out of stock. So that's too bad. (laughs) I'm glad you looked into that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your dedication to the details. Well, United must have bought off the last couple. That explains everything. Mm -hmm. Let's close out the show with, I don't want to call it inventive, and I don't know if it's unique. That would be an interesting question. But what is Indigo doing now to get people off the plane quicker? How many doors do typical airlines use to board and deboard the aircraft? I mean, I, I would say one the most average of the time. Probably one, two, right? Two. Yeah. Well, well, the average has to be more than one. Well, yeah. But the, the, if you're using the it, average airline will the normal, use the one yeah. L door. If you're on a sure. wide body, maybe they'll use one L and two L if you're at a nicely configured airport. Some airlines, low-cost carriers in particular, will use two doors. They will use the the front left door and the rear left door of the aircraft. Indigo, a couple weeks ago, started using three doors. They are using one R to get people off the aircraft. And it's just one of those things that like, if you're in the aviation industry, this will blow your mind that they're using one R to get people off the airplane. But then you look at it, you're like, why haven't we all been doing that? Like it, it must speed up getting people off the aircraft by like 
maybe not a third because you're still having to slot people down the aisle to get to the door. But it, it's got to help quite a bit, right? So what they're doing is they've got – these are at hard stands. These are not with jet bridges. So they have two of the – Back and forth rampy things. Back and forth rampy thingies. Yeah, that's the the technical term. Basically, walking ramps that can also accommodate system mobility device, a wheelchair or or a scooter or something. And they've got two of those: one at the one L door, one R door, and they have a, a third at the rear left side door. And so you get to the front, and and you can kind of split off, and it looks like it's working. A fascinating idea. How much of that can be replicated elsewhere, though? They say in a Reuters article from a week ago, they say it will improve turnaround times by three to five minutes. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. And when you're operating a tight schedule the way Indigo is, that's that's a big deal. Yeah. And they'll be rolling this out to 70% of their operations nationwide where they're able to. Their usual turnaround time is anywhere between 30 and 35 minutes. So shaving five minutes off that is not nothing. I have never heard of an airline using three doors. If you have heard of that, reach out to us at podcast at fr24.com. We've seen double jet bridges before at Amsterdam when they decide to actually use those, which doesn't seem like very often, but using three doors to get people off the aircraft. If you've seen it before, I'd like to hear about it. The other thing I would love to see is an airline implement a system where you have people like rushing you onto the plane with like a stopwatch. And if you get on soon enough, you get a refund, a partial refund on your ticket. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something that's going to happen. You don't sound confident that it will. No. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll leave it at that then. This has been episode 176. If you've enjoyed the podcast or if you haven't and you have things to say, please, by all means, leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. We always appreciate hearing from you directly as well, podcast at fr24.com, as we have mentioned. Next week, we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to take a break. What? It's, uh, we I that? know. I know. We normally do a gap week at the end of the year. We're also going to do one, at, I guess, the end of the middle of the year or the beginning of the end of the year. I'm not sure how to term it. Sure. But we're going to take a break. So next week, we won't have a new episode. We will have some of our favorite conversations from this year so far as part of a, an episode for you to listen to. We hope you'll enjoy that. And we'll see you with a new episode, not next week but the week after next. As always, I am Ian Pechnik, and I am here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.